Father in heaven, we are so thankful for this opportunity that you have given us to be together, to um, gather around your word, to hear from you the truths of your word. And Father, I pray for each one of us that you would cause our hearts to be soft toward the things that you want to teach us this morning, that our minds would be sharp and focused in on your word as we look up verses and um, discover all that you have done for us and your provision for us. And Father, we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we learn and think on you this morning. And we remember that all of this is possible because of Christ's work on the cross. And Father, we are so thankful that in your mercy that you sent your Son to die in our place, taking on our wrath, and that because of that we can live in newness of life. And I pray that as we think about those things, focus on those things this morning, that we would be motivated to live a life that is worthy of our calling. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to begin this morning by reading to you an illustration. On December 7, 1941, on an otherwise peaceful Sunday morning on a beautiful Hawaiian island, the first wave of Japanese airplanes struck Pearl Harbor. The surprise was complete. By 1 p.m., the carriers that launched the planes were already heading back to Japan. Behind them, they left chaos. 2,403 were left for dead, 188 planes were destroyed, and it left a crippled Pacific fleet. Now, interestingly, this attack was not without warning. Aggression on Japan's part was not new, and relations between the U.S. and Japan were strained. We had broken the Japanese diplomatic code, and we knew an attack was imminent. Early warning radar even spotted Japanese planes before the attack. The private who spotted them said, hey, Mac, there is a big uh, flight of planes coming in, and the whole scope is covered. But the lieutenant on duty, thinking that they were incoming U.S. planes, said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The U.S. fleet had its strengths. We had a strong Pacific fleet, and we knew an attack was coming, and yet we didn't take the warnings seriously. We didn't prepare. We didn't respond to what we knew. Now, you might be thinking, what does all of that have to do with the heart? Well, let's begin by review. First of all, we've learned so far this year that the heart fails us, that it is beyond our ability to cleanse. It's the source of defilement within us. It's foolishness. It plunges us into further spiritual darkness. 
and it's easily deceived even when it's at its best. We saw that it's the most exceptional deceiver and that we can even deceive our own heart. But we also saw that Christ went to the cross to give us a new heart. So, are you left wondering, if I have a new heart, then why do I still struggle with sin? Scott even talked about that a little bit on Sunday. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So when you walked in, you were given um, so many outlines that they were paper-clipped together. Uh, first of all, you were given a diagram that looks like this. And then you were given a char- several charts. We're going to look at these two first. Okay? And actually, you'll see that Cassidy color-coded them for us so that the gray continues all the way down. If you want to put them on your laps this way, that might be helpful for you. Um, because these really communicate the same thing. Okay, One's just in a picture form and one is in a chart form. So if you kind of hold them on your lap and you'll see where the gray continues down, the unregenerate you, and then the glorified you is in yellow. So if you want to just kind of set those down. So over on the left-hand side of that chart, you'll see the unregenerate you. This is who, you, how, who we were before Christ, apart from him. We were, at that time, in an unmixed condition. There was only depravity. Okay? We were only controlled by sin. We were hostile to God. We were dead in our sins, we walked in our sins, we lived in the lusts of flesh, we indulged in the desires of our flesh, of our mind, we were children of wrath, we had no hope, we were without God, we were under the domain of darkness, we were alienated from God, we were hostile in mind, we were slaves to sin, to impurity, to lawlessness. Wow, that is a problem. But that's who we were before God saved us. That's who we were. Okay, If we're now in Christ, that no longer describes us. And by God's providence, we were not taken out of that unmixed sinful condition at the time of our salvation and immediately placed over here, which is what we would have wanted, right? Into that unmixed, holy, obedient condition. That's without flaws. Unfortunately, that's not where we are, is it? But rather, that describes what our glorified bodies, okay? That's going to be our eternal state. We know that someday we'll bear the image of the heavenly. Death's sting will be gone, we'll be like Jesus. But that's not where we are right now. And so um, I want to make clear to us that we understand that that's not what it means to have a new heart or to be a new creation. Okay, being a new creation is an un—excuse me—is a mixed condition. This is an unmixed condition. What we were, what we're going to be, is an unmixed condition. But right now we are living in a mixed condition. Okay, 
What makes, up, what makes it new when we talk about having a new heart or being new creation is that new is not what the old was. Okay, We're no longer unregenerate. We don't live in that dark, that gray area anymore. So this morning we're going to look at that middle section, at this mixed condition of a believer. And like that Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, we're going to see some strengths and we're going to see some weaknesses. We're going to look at our condition as believers because we too are prone to think, just like that lieutenant, don't worry about it. But we cannot think that way. We must know our condition and we need to know how to respond to it. So let's work our way through these charts and we're going to begin with this one, the color-coded one. Okay, our goal is to accurately understand what God says about our mixed condition. And I pray that we will be motivated as we learn so that we will earnestly participate in the process of sanctification so that we are increasingly transformed into the image of Christ. So let's begin there, but before we do, I want you to just turn the page like this and look at that really narrow column between identity without Christ and positional realities. It says, event accomplished by God. Regeneration. Okay, Regeneration is an event, and it was accomplished by God. It's when God made us alive spiritually. Now, if your laps aren't already full and you can, I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5. It says, But God, two of my favorite words in Scripture, because I love what comes after it, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved. So this verse tells us that God is the one at work here. He's motivated by the richness of his grace. He made us alive together with Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We have a new life and a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are new creations. The old is gone. So for the believer, what we see on that left column, the unregenerate, the old self, it's gone. We never will live here again. When a person is regenerated, which is the same thing, means the same thing as being born again or being made alive spiritually, they receive the gift of faith, enabling them to repent and to believe in the gospel. Now let's look at those three middle columns, the positional realities. Okay, It describes things that are true when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And they are always true from conversion onward. They are a result of regeneration. 
Now, just a quick note about about this chart. This, by no means, is exhaustive. Okay, and it's not even really systematic in the order that things are listed. And uh, you might be able to come up with a lot of other things to add to it. And I'd encourage you to do that. As you're spending time with the Lord and his word and you come up with more, add it to this. Make this a worksheet. This is just a tool for you. We are really, what we're really aiming for is to understand this morning some of the characteristics of our mixed condition as believers. So let's look at those first three columns. These are things that are true about a believer because she is regenerated. Now look at the top of that list. You'll see Romans 1.17, Philippians 3.9, and 2 Corinthians 5.21. All of these describe the gospel in terms of a righteousness from God for us on the basis of faith. Romans 1.17 says that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness which is by faith from first to last. Now turn to Philippians 3 with me. Here Paul is pointing to the same righteousness by faith. Beginning in verse 7, he writes, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him. And now here is how how he wants to be found in Christ. Why he counts all things to be rubbish. Why he has suffered the loss of all things. Verse 9, that may, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. Paul is saying that God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. He judges us based on Christ's sinless record. Now can you hear in Paul's words how precious these truths were to him? It's because of this righteousness that he could know Christ. That was his passion. It's what consumed him, and it's what controlled him. Ladies, is this truth that precious to us? That in Christ, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from beginning to the end? Does it drive us to know Christ as it did Paul? See, we need to soak ourselves in these realities and plead with God to soften our hearts so that we never stop being impacted by what Christ has done for us. So that we never forget all that God did to reconcile us to himself. 
But let's move on and see what Colossians 3.12 says. It says, We are holy and dearly loved by God. We hear words describing a God who has poured out his affections on us. We see it again in Ephesians 1.5. It says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. We are a beloved, adopted children. He has brought us into his family. Now, I want you to stop and just take a moment and listen as I read through this list. These are gospel realities. Let the truth of them impact you as I read them. God's Holy Spirit indwells us We are members of Christ's body. He is our head. We have God's commitment to finish what he's begun in us. We have God's promise to resurrect us and to give us resurrection bodies. We have confident access to God. We are under grace, not law. We are forgiven. We're redeemed. We're washed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath for the believer. We've been freed from sin, and we're now enslaved to God. These are things that God has done in the life of a believer. Now let's look at the middle common. These are the strength. We're going to look at some strengths. So in addition to the positional reality, God's word also describes many new strengths, new abilities and desires and motivations in the believer. This column represents processes. We are called and equipped by God to participate in these processes. Just like a newborn baby comes into a family bearing the family name. But she still must learn how to speak, how to walk, how to talk. She participates in that process, right? In the process by which she's going to grow and mature. So this column describes new abilities for a believer. The old self before Christ had no ability and no desire for these things. So this list, just like that first list of positional realities, ought to give us cause for great joy. So let's look at some of these strengths. I want you to turn to 1 Peter 2. We're going to look at verse 2. Some of you new moms ought to have a really great picture of this. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Believer, have you thought, have you looked at this verse and realized that we are commanded to long for God's word? So that, and here's the reason, that by it, we will grow in our salvation. What it, why does a baby long for milk? 
It's the only thing that will sustain him, that will satisfy him. Right, Camille? When we embrace that God's provision for our hearts is his word, the only thing that will satisfy us and sustain us, the only thing that will make us grow, then we will choose to long for God's word. Not just to nibble at it a little bit, but to long for it because it's where we meet with our God. This is one way that God has given us to participate in our growth. Now I want you to turn to John 14, 21. You see in the next box, we now have the ability to be obedient. Do you realize that God has not only called us to obey, but through the gospel, he has also enabled us to obey. He set us free from the slavery of sin, from the slavery to ourselves, to our own will. Obedience is evidence that we are born again. It's proof that we love Jesus. John 14, 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And if we're going to keep his commandments, then what, what do we need to know? We need to know them. And where do we know them? From his word, right? We have to be in his word if we are going to obey this commandment and understand that he's enabled us to obey his commandment. We've got to be in his word. In Philippians 2.12, Paul commends the Philippians for their obedience. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? Obedience is how believers show Jesus that they love him. And it's how we participate in the working out of our salvation. Now, notice that we looked at this new ability to obey after we looked at all of those positional realities. Okay? In Ephesians 4, 2 Peter 1, Titus 2, Titus 3, if you read those verses, you will find that the commandments are embedded with declarations of the gospel and who we are because of the gospel. See, these commands are never designed to be something that we just grab a hold of and we run off and take care of them in our own, apart from Christ, in our own flesh. That's why Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, we obey as ones who are alive in Christ. He is our life, 
and he is our master. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that the one died for all, who's that? Please, you know this. Who died for all? Believers? Christ. Okay, thank you. Therefore, all died. And he died so that they who live, again, all believers, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ controls us and it enables us to obey. So since obedience is in this column of new strengths and abilities that a believer has, that means that every single new covenant command really belongs in this column. We just ran out of room. God has commanded and equipped us to obey every New Testament commandment in Christ. Every one. Do you believe that? See, I'm afraid that sometimes there are areas in our lives where we just get comfortable with disobedience. Can you think of any of those? I know I can. There are times where we think it's too hard to obey. Where we allow ourselves to think we can't obey. When really the truth is we won't obey. See, that's not what God's word says. 2 Peter 1.3 says his divine power has granted to us everything. Not a few things, everything pertaining to life and godliness. 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome, because he's given us everything we need to obey them. This verse is a great transition to the next row in this call, to love God. Love and obedience are intertwined. If we feed our love for God, then we can watch our obedience grow. It's hard to love something that the one you adore hates. It's hard to love sin When we love and adore the one who hates that sin. Are you beginning to get a fresh understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross? Not only are the positional realities ours, but so are the new abilities to participate in the process of sanctification. God has chosen us and enabled us to grow and to obey and to love him. Now, we can look down that list and we most often think of these things as commands. And they are. But have you ever considered what God's grace has shown in enabling us to obey his commands? Look down that list again and think of it this way. 
we can now love our neighbor and our enemy. We can forgive. We can repent. We can be thankful. We can lay aside falsehood. We can be diligent. We can be humble. And we can have the right motives. We no longer need to obey from fear of punishment or to get something that we want. Rather, we can obey because we know God is God and he has a right to rule in our lives. And because God has made us a new creation who now wants to please him. We can obey because he has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now let's look together at 1 Timothy 1.15. It's listed on the second page of your chart. This perhaps is one of the greatest blessings that God gives us in salvation. The ability to see ourselves more accurately. Verse 15 says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Who's writing these words? The Apostle Paul, who wrote a great portion of the New Testament, who laid down his very life to make the gospel known and to establish churches throughout the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul declared himself to be the foremost sinner. Now, if the Apostle Paul sees himself that way, shouldn't we also? So there's a certain paradox as we read these verses. On the one hand, we are growing in obedience and holiness. And yet, on the other hand, we're seeing ourselves as more and more sinful. But that's how it is, isn't it? The more we see our sinfulness, the more we treasure the gospel. The more we understand that we are the foremost sinner, the more we understand how desperate we are for God. See, if we get this, then we don't have to have an accountability partner to get us into the word. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But we'll so desire to be in the word every day. No one will have to wonder what our prayer life is like. Because if we get this, that we are the foremost sinner, we'll cling to Jesus like a drowning man clings to a life raft. Nothing will be able to peel us away from him. Do you maybe need to change the way that you see yourself as Christ 
did. So now we need to move on. Let's look at the weaknesses column. Remember the analogy at Pearl Harbor. Okay, it wasn't enough that they knew their strengths. Certainly the outcome would have been different if they had been in the position to use their strengths. But the only way they could have been prepared to do so is if they had taken those threats seriously. Okay, so now we're going to look at some of those threats in our own lives. Specifically, we're going to look at our own weaknesses, even as a believer. Now, I don't think there is anyone in this room who would try and convince anyone that we don't have any weaknesses, that we don't have some ongoing struggles with sin. But even though we know it, even though we know we do, we don't know, we are not always responsive to it. We're not always aggressive with our battle with it. Like the lieutenant at Pearl Harbor who dismissed that radar showing incoming Japanese planes saying, don't worry about it, we are prone to take the grace of God for granted and look at our weaknesses and think, I don't need to worry. We need to understand our weaknesses. Not so that we'll worry about them, but so that we can respond biblically with the gospel, with all of the tools that God has given to us for fighting sin and for growing in our sanctification. So now let's look at the weaknesses column on your chart. You can see that it says there, God still sees us as righteous through our standing in Christ. Let's not forget that. These weaknesses, as discouraging as they can be, do not negate that what God has done for us in justification. And they do not negate the enabling grace that he's given to us to participate in our sanctification. But we still need to have a proper understanding of our present condition so that we see areas that we are vulnerable. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul had to warn the Colossian believers not to be deceived. They weren't immune to deception just because they were believers. They were new creations. And you know what? Neither are we. The world's way of thinking, the world's principles, the world's traditions, they're captivating. They tend to draw us in. And we don't fight this tendency by thinking, don't worry about it. No, Paul voices intentional action here. See to it, he says, that this doesn't happen to you. In 1 Peter 1.13, Paul, Paul says to fight this way. 
Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, prepare your mind. Be zealous for biblical thinking. No matter where you are in reading the scriptures, look for what God says about his character. Look for what he says about sin. Look at what he says about those who love God and those who don't. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we are to take our thoughts captive to obedience to Christ. And Philippians 4.8 tells us what we are to replace those thoughts with. It's what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, and so on. These verses are very helpful for obeying Paul's admonition to not be deceived, not to be taken captive into worldly thinking. In addition to these warnings in Colossians, Galatians, again, look down the list, warns us against legalism and and abusing freedom. 1 John 2 warns believers against worldliness. In 2 Peter 2, believers are warned against false teachers. The letter to the churches in Revelation show us, show us believers who have left their first love, who are involved in immorality, and who are self-confident and proud. See, we must understand our own vulnerability. If you've been around children, which I think most of you have, you know that one of the greatest concerns is what they don't understand. Children have a tendency to be inac- have an inaccurate assessment of what they can handle. And now we have to ask ourselves, do we? Do we assume that because we are Christians, we can handle temptation, that we won't be deceived, that we won't be worldly, that we won't be legalistic. See, let's make sure that we have a complete biblical picture of who we are in Christ, of our mixed condition. We do have the ability to resist temptation, but not in our own strength. We live in weak flesh. Our spiritual growth in holiness is dependent upon our reliance on Christ and his spirit and his word, not on ourselves. So if that's true, how do we respond to our weaknesses? We must flee to the cross. We must treasure the gospel, and preach it to ourselves more and more. We must have an attitude that acknowledges how desperately we need him. So that brings us then to the other chart that you received when you came in. So one that looks like this. 
the sanctification chart. Now, as with the first chart, there is way more information on here than we'll be able to cover this morning. But again, remember, these all these charts um, are all resources for you. In fact, I'd encourage you to put them in your Bible and take them out. Go over them. Might be a great thing to tool to use maybe before you spend time with the Lord um, in his word. Now, what do we mean by when we say sanctification? A sanctification is a word used to describe our growth as believers. It's what it looks like as we become more like Christ. So at the top of the chart, you'll see Hebrews 12, 14. It tells us that we are to pursue sanctification. So we're commanded and enabled by God's grace to pursue sanctification. Pursue is an active word. We pursue things that really matter to us. Pursue has a sense of drive and energy and priority to it. It means other things are not pursued so that we can pursue wholeheartedly the things that are important to us. Sanctification is to be pursued. God is calling us to put our drive and our energy and our priority into the pursuit of holiness. Now look below the Hebrews 12, 14 verse. This chart answers two two questions. The first one, who sanctifies the believer? And then the second one, how is the believer sanctified? Or to phrase it differently, what are God's ongoing means of grace for sanctification? So to answer the first question, God's word identifies each person of the Godhead. See it there? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all actively working in our sanctification. Can you see that sanctification is important to God? Take heart in that. He is working for our sanctification as well. Now to answer that second question, we've divided it to see the different means of God's grace, how it works through our salvation. So you can see that first, God's direct involvement, and then second, how the word sanctifies, Third, how the body of Christ is used to sanctify the believer. And then finally, what the believer's responsibility is for their own sanctification. Excuse me. So let's look at that first column, God's direct involvement. I want you to look at the second one listed there that says all things. I want you to turn to Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he could be the firstborn among many brethren. Now the first verse I think is very familiar to most of us. 
But let's make sure that we look at the next verse, which explains exactly what God's purpose is in working all things together for good. It is to conform us into the image of his Son so that we will look like Jesus. So in the broadest sense, everything is God's tool for our sanctification. His tool to work for our good, which will make us more like Jesus. So that includes, and you can see it on your chart, trials, discipline, pruning. Do we need to believe that? To remember that in the trial, that God's tool to work for our good includes difficulties. Trials are hard, but God is always trustworthy. He's good. He always loves his children. Is there maybe an area this morning where you need to decide that you will trust God. That you will believe that what he's, do, what he's allowing, that he is acting for your good. What difficulty will you thank God for because of what he promises to do through it in your life? Will you obediently consider it all joy when you face trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance? And will you let that endurance have its perfect result so that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? That means mature, spiritually mature. Though this is God's direct involvement, we must choose to submit to him and to trust him. Now let's look at that second column, the word. Now we've already spent a lot of time in Wellspring looking at God's design for our hearts to be united with his word. So this is just a sample, but let's look at some of the specific things that God's word does to sanctify us. It builds up, it washes, it teaches, it rebukes, corrects, and trains in righteousness, it equips for good works, it nourishes. It's what we talk about every week in Discipline 1. It's where we meet with God. And there is nothing that grows our holiness more than being with the one who is holy. Now let's look at that third column, the body. When you think of sanctification, do you think too narrowly? I think it's easy for us to forget that God grows us in a body. He sanctifies us through others in the body, and he sanctifies others, excuse me, and he sanctifies us through others in the body. Scripture is full of one another's. By that I mean instructions on how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ. All are important, again, for both our own sanctification and for others' sanctification. 
We are to strengthen and encourage others' faith with the gospel. Now let's look at the second one. I think it's one that is easy for us to neglect, and that's prayer. Colossians 4.12 says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Whoa, did you hear that? Epaphras was always laboring earnestly in his prayers for the believers at Colossae. Listen to the weight of these words. Always. He never quit. Laboring. That's the idea of toiling with all of his might. Earnestly. He prayed with soberness and weightiness. Does that describe our prayers? I know I don't always take it that seriously. But when we neglect to pray for one another, we need to see how that could affect the growth of someone in the body. Colossians 4, 2 and 3 tells us to devote ourselves to prayer. Devotion means to be faithful, to give undivided attention and effort. When we're devoted to some, something, it means that we set aside time for it. It has priority. For me, I know if I don't plan for it, it doesn't happen. Ladies, I think this is a difficult discipline for many of us. How often do we acknowledge that if we neglect prayer, we're being disobedient? So we need to think how we will obey this command and see it as participating in not only our own sanctification, but also in the sanctification of others. Let's continue down that list. It says we're to be preferring others above ourselves, teaching and admonishing one another, building up one another, encouraging one another daily, spurring one another on, striving together for the faith of the gospel. All of these benefit the body. All are a means of God's grace for sanctification. So that brings us to the last column, the believer. Now many of these that we're going to look at overlap with the first chart and even the first three columns of this chart. For example, look at the fourth one down. It says, hold fast to the word, the gospel. Okay? Again, it's a reminder, it is not going to sanctify us if we're not reading it. We'll see a couple more that overlap. We're to live in peace, peaceful unity with the body of Christ. We're to pray. 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us that we are to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You'll see other verses that warn us to flee. We're to flee from discontentment, from the love of money, from immorality and idolatry. We are commanded to flee. 
Now that doesn't sound like a casual stroll, does it to you? No, fleeing is what we do when we are in imminent danger. We drop everything and run. Temptation places us in that kind of danger. We must flee. Take some time and look at those this week. And after we flee, what do we pursue instead? The verse tells us we are to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. See, we like focusing on the fact that salvation and sanctification is a work of God. And it is. But let's not ignore God's command, his design for us to participate. That's one of the ways he works and accomplishes our sanctification. We need to make intentional strides away from the attitude that we saw at Pearl Harbor. Don't worry about it. As new creations, we have a new identity, a mixed condition. We have new desires and new abilities. And we also have an increasing ability of understanding just how weak we really are. God in his goodness has provided us abundant means for living as new creations. So let's be diligent to pursue him and obey him so that we may grow in grace. As we do that, as we pursue sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus, we will be effective instruments in God's hands to help others grow. There's discipline two and three. And if we pursue sanctification, we submit to God, we will be ready to meet him when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can look at that left-hand column, that unregenerate you, that dark, unregenerate you. And Father, we know that we no longer live in that condition because of your work, because you sent Jesus to die in our place. He took on the wrath against all of those things in that column, all of our sin. Father, thank you that we don't have to live in fear that someday we might go back to that, but that we know that your work on the cross, Jesus, is complete. And Father, you see us now through Jesus' work. We are so thankful for that. Thank you that someday we know we will be with you. We will see you face to face. Father, we long for that day. But until then, we know that you have left us in a mixed condition. And Father, I pray that as a result of looking at so many verses this morning, looking at your word, that we will 
be willing to be active in our sanctification as you desire us to, that we will actively pursue sanctification, that we won't have an attitude of don't worry about it, but rather we will pursue you with all of our hearts, that we will see the danger that we are in unless we are pursuing you, and that we will see how needy we are. And as a result of that need, that we will desire to be in your word, that we will long for your word, long to be with you. And Father, we are thankful for your word. As reminded this morning, not everyone has access to it. And Father, so many of us have many Bibles in our house. I pray that we would use them, that we would desire more and more for time with you in your word, and that you would use that to accomplish your will, your purposes in our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.